This episode is a repost. The stand is taking a break for the Christmas holiday period, and we are posting some of our favourite episodes from our back catalogue. You can find more at the stand with AimonDunphy.com. Have a lovely Christmas and a happy new year. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, we have had for almost a decade commemorations of the period when this state was born, when it tried to shake off the chains of the British occupiers and in various ways what we now have has been shaped, uh, it is said, uh, by those events, whether it be the Civil War or 1916, or indeed the War of Independence. And uh, one of the most interesting voices on these matters is Professor Dermot Ferreter. He's Professor of Modern Irish History in UCD. He writes a column every Friday in the Irish Times. And it's a pleasure to welcome him to the stand to discuss the most emotive, perhaps, of all the things we've had to reflect on, and that is the Civil War. Dimit, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Ian. The Civil War always struck me, in my ignorance really, as the most appalling, as all Civil Wars perhaps are, the Spanish Civil War, for example, the most appalling, unforgettable, and lasting sadness of this whole period. Can you explain how we got to it? Was it simply de Valera and his view and Collins and his view of whether we should have a treaty with the British that gave us less than we wanted? It's interesting that you mentioned those two giants, those two icons of that period. It was such a lottery for leadership, that era. You know, de Valera yes. obviously survived and, and went on to become extraordinarily successful as a politician, but many would have argued that he did that by ultimately proving the veracity of what Michael Collins had said, which was that the compromise that the Anglo-Irish Treaty represented in, in late 1921 would be the stepping stone that might ultimately bring uh, about the Republic. Yes. Now, of course, it wasn't a Republic that either side had envisaged. Uh, it wasn't a 32-county a united Irish Republic. So there was always going to be disappointment and unfinished business, and we're still dealing with the legacy of that in many ways. I suppose one of the things that we've moved away from is the tendency to see the Civil War through the prism 
of de Valera and Collins uh, are, are, are those big political beasts. Yes. One of the things that came out of the commemorations was a much wider sense of how that generation of men and women engaged with the issues. How were they guided by the lights of their time? Uh, and we don't need to be reductive about that, and we don't need to impose uh, 21st century values on them as a generation. Uh, I've often pointed towards the treaty debates, for example, which in a way are neglected because, again, I mean, we know the main arguments, you yes. know, that, you know, the stepping stone argument or else the, this was a great betrayal of, of what people had committed themselves to the Republic and what people had died for. But what you got in the treaty debates was actually a much wider sense of what that generation stood for, or what their worldview might have been. And they're not necessarily full of certainty and, and trenchancy, even though we talk about the Civil War divide and people digging in. There were a lot who were wavering. There were a lot who were caught between. There were many who opted out of the Civil War. I've given the example before uh, of in the region of 40% of those who were in the GPO in 1916 deciding that they didn't want to be a part of the Civil War because they found it uh, too difficult. So we have to be conscious, I suppose, of, of, of what motivated them and what their mentalities were. And sometimes it's too simplistic to say that it was a battle between Democrats and dictators or the diehards uh, and those who were, were guided by reason or, or practicalities. Um, it, it didn't work that way for them at the time. They didn't see it always in those terms. The treaty debates took place when? And, they took, and, and, be, and between, obviously, the the opposing factions. But when did they take place and they, did they yield anything in terms of a common view? No, I mean, what, I suppose what you could say is a common view is that they were all committed to the idea of the Republic. What they disagreed in was how you might get there yes. or whether or not you had to compromise along the way towards that Republic. So they were all obviously from the Sinn Féin family, but that Sinn Féin family had never been um, monolithic. That Sinn yes. Féin family had incorporated people like Arthur Griffith, the original founder of Sinn Féin. You know, he was not a diehard Republican. It also included people like Liam Lynch, who we associate with the end of the Civil War because his death in April 1923 as the chief of staff of the IRA really signaled the end uh, of the Civil War. And yet, in early 1922, he was not considered to be one of the most militant or one of the most diehard. And there were an awful lot of people who went out of their way in the first half of 1922 from both sides to try and find common ground, to try and prevent this great sadness. And you're right to refer to it as sadness. And the emotional climate, I would argue, is hugely important. It's not just about political arguments. It's not just about, you know, the oath of allegiance to the British crown, which stuck in the throat uh, of so many Republicans. It's also about the, the emotiveness of it all. What have we been involved in as mostly young men uh, and women? And how can we find a way out of this that doesn't involve us tearing each other apart? And, you know, Liam Lynch and his colleagues would have much preferred if they were fighting the Brits as yes. opposed to fighting uh, their uh, fellow compatriots from the uh, War of Independence. Uh, and that great sense of a personal rupture, it ruptures friendships, it ruptures families, it ruptures communities. Uh, and that lingers. I went down to Kerry in February to speak at a National Civil War conference. And you know what really struck me? were the, it's the quiet dignity almost of the children in some cases and grandchildren of the Civil War generation. If you take someone like Stephen Fuller, for example, who survived the Ballyseedy Massacre, he was the only one to survive the Ballyseedy Massacre in Kerry yes. in 1923. His son, Paddy, who is now in his 80s, 
And he, he was asked, you know, well, did your father ever talk about it or could you draw him out on it? And he just simply said, it hurt too much to talk. And I understood what he meant. And, you, you know, you had people coming in there. They weren't looking to settle scores 100 years on. They're looking to try and understand. I mean, one of our missions, obviously, during the commemorations was to complicate the narrative. Um, and it wasn't necessarily about people, again, redigging the trenches. It was about them trying to understand that there was this crisis, obviously, within the broad Republican movement. But there was also the bread and butter issues that they had to deal with, the class issues that they had to deal with. How do you adjust yourself to a civil war? And after the civil war, what are your options? Particularly if you're on the losing side. So many emigrated, for example, from the part of West Kerry that my grandfather would have been for, been from both men and women. And they had to deal, you know, with that dispensation, but also the internal um, conflicts that are going on for them emotionally. There's a very interesting line from Ernie O'Malley, who you'll have heard of, because he was yes. one of the leading lights within the anti-treaty IRA. And as he got older, he didn't see Britain as his enemy anymore. He said, each man finds his enemy within himself. Yes. And I thought that was a, a sad but very accurate way of encapsulating that sense of, of inner conflict and, and betrayal and disappointment. So it's to try and understand, I suppose, that climate. And yes, of course, we can talk about the politics and the, uh, and the civil war politics. But I think we forget sometimes when we focus so much on civil war politics, what it did to the texture and the ethos of Ireland. Yes. The impact of the Civil War and the end of the Civil War. The Catholic Church, for example, when you look at their pronouncements in the 1920s, they're full of gloom. They're full of denunciations. There's a constant focus on the idea that the Irish have lost their way and lost their morality as a result of all these upheavals, and they need to be put back on the right path. And I think the Catholic Church was scared by the yes. scale of the vitriol and the violence during the Civil War and was determined to reassert itself and, of course, could emphasize, well, whatever divides us, we have this Catholic faith, most of us in common. And, of course, they moved into a kind of a power vacuum sure uh, and in the long run <laughs> gained far too much power and abused it. But there was also a very substantial constituency of anti-treaty Republicans who, you know, in, in August 1923, in the general election of 1923, they won 44 seats. They had a very solid base from which to work. And many of those who voted for anti-treaty candidates, even after the end of the Civil War, they were actually defying their church leaders. Yes. But de Valera was not really trusted by the incorruptible Greens on the, on the anti-treaty IRA side. And that's why he parted company with Sinn Féin. And you can see, even in his correspondence with Liam Lynch 100 years ago, he's saying to Liam Lynch as the chief of staff of the IRA, clearly I don't have the influence I would like, but we have to try and guide these people onto the path of employment and, and constitutional opposition. And that eventually was what happened. Yeah, my father, for example, loathed uh, de Valera. Mm. And he wasn't a hater by any means. Uh, but you mentioned Ballyseedy and the massacre that took place there. And Kerry was a particular, for want of a better phrase, hotspot. Mm -hmm. And that's a particular, they tethered this man to a landmine and blew it up. And that seems to be a particularly brutal, almost inhuman act. Is that a feature? of civil wars and was it a feature of the civil war particularly in Kerry it is a feature of civil war 
And we have to remind ourselves, okay, things got really bad and horrendous in Kerry, particularly in, in, in March of 1923. Why is that, Dermot? Why is it a feature, would you say? Partly it had to do with the frustration on the pro-treaty side that they couldn't rout these diehards. In other words, the anti-treaty side had been defeated comprehensively in conventional military terms. They didn't have the resources or the popular support to have any chance of defeating the pro-treaty side. And yet it was difficult for the pro-treaty side to stamp them out completely because they had retreated to the the Munster hinterland. They were engaging in guerrilla tactics. It's very difficult to stamp that out completely. So they grew ever more determined and ruthless and desperate. And of course, the IRA did terrible things in Kerry. It has to be acknowledged as well uh, in 1923. And a lot of this was about a lust for revenge. And it is a feature of civil war that former comrades can turn on each other sometimes with a viciousness that had not been experiencing when they were fighting uh, a common enemy. And we have to remember in comparative terms that the Irish death count was actually quite low. We can highlight events like Knocknagoshal or, or, or Ballyseedy or Countess Bridge, and they were horrendous events. Uh, but they're not on the scale that you might have got in other civil wars. We don't yes. have that kind of culture of defeat that was part of the First World War that led to what historians call ultra-violence in some places. Consider Finland, Eamon. In 1918, yeah. in a country of similar size, 36,000 people were killed in the Finnish Civil War. Yes. And what was so savage about that was that thousands of them were starved to death in prison camps. We didn't reach those steps. No, as, as I've often thought about it, and when I've thought about it, it the feeling of treachery. This, yeah. this, if you fall out, or if a friend or someone or a neighbor betrays you, yeah. it's treacherous. Um, and it's funny, something Putin said recently about the people he's murdered. He, he said, if it's one of your own who betrays you and is treacherous, you've no problem seeking them out and killing them and murdering them. However, yeah. if it's an enemy that's known, it's a different thing. Yeah. I mean, now I'm, I'm paraphrasing. No, you're obviously. right. It's, it's a very personal kind of betrayal. And what that does to the psychology is fascinating and frightening. Yes. And it is a different depth. And that sense of the personalization of it, we can see that in politics as well. You mentioned there your uh, father's attitude to de Valera. Yes. For many, he was the man they could not forgive. It was a very personal kind of antipathy towards him. <laughs> My mother they, loved, they, loved him. I'm named after him. <laughs> well, you see, this, this is the interesting point, that uh, this is the thing about the, the polarizations. For all those who hated him with a passion, there were those who revered him. Uh, and my father's mother would have been the same, uh, and father. You know, they had what they would have regarded as a particular personal connection with de Valera. They came to see him as encapsulating a particular cause, whereas others saw that cause as hugely damaging uh, and egotistical. And ego is important here. You know, people are struggling with coming to terms with the loss of their prestige. I mean, if you take Eamon de Valera, I think one of the best things that happened to de Valera was his incarceration um, in 1923, because yes. it gave him time in prison, in turn, to, to reflect on what had gone wrong. Um, and his ego is hugely wounded as well. But what he does is he carves a way out. There were a few who would have predicted, uh, particularly on the pro-treaty side in 1923, uh, that de Valera would be able to stage a remarkable comeback in a very short uh, space of time. But that's what he did, because ultimately, 
as he put it in, you know, quite a well-known letter now to Mary McSweeney uh, during the Civil War, um, you know, I can't identify with the McSweeney's uh, of this world. You know, for me, it really is about reason rather than faith. And whilst I have faith in the Republic, uh, I have to try and chart out a practical uh, political path. Um, so, you know, he saw himself, even though he was on the same side uh, as those militant, militant anti-treatyites, yes. he saw himself in a different light. And he did self-servingly describe himself as quite powerless during uh, the Civil War. I mean, he wasn't completely ever uh, without power. But he certainly found that he couldn't quite make common cause with those who are really focused on on the idea of the faith in the Republic. And it is almost a spiritual or religious thing. And Mary McSweeney and others talked about it in those terms. And it's very difficult to argue uh, with those who are committed to their Republican faith in that way. You yes. know, they talk and often invoke the ghosts of the War of Independence dead. You know, Mary McSweeney obviously was from the McSweeney family. Terence McSweeney died on hunger strike. Uh, this is not what he died for. And we can see versions of that argument at a much later stage, of course, in the context of, of the modern troubles. What do people make sacrifices for? What do they die for? What do they inflict pain for? Uh, and this is where, you know, the, the complications of compromise uh, become so obvious. But the Civil War remained a reference point. It's not that it was being debated across the Dáil Chamber all the time. That can be exaggerated. But for many, it remained, again, a very kind of personal reference point. And there's a great sadness uh, around that. And of course, silence, too, is a strategy that people can employ to try and deal with, with what happened. Take the end of the Civil War. What happened after the end of the Civil War to Noel Lamas, for example, the brother of Sean Lamas? When yes, he was, I was going to ask you about because He was mutilated and uh, savagely yes. killed in the Dublin Mountains. And the Civil War was over, but it wasn't, obviously, completely over. But Sean never spoke publicly about that. That's right. That intrigued me because when he was asked about it, he said, I've nothing to say about that. I, we don't talk about that. Yeah. He said terrible things were done by both sides. I'd, I'd rather not speak about it. And he yes. teared up. He was emotional about it. He was an elderly man at that stage. He had retired uh, from politics. But that stuff doesn't go away. And, you know, there's Sean Lamas tapes in the UCD archive because Sean Lamas didn't leave any kind of an archive behind. And I remember going through the transcripts of the tape, tapes, and he talks around the Civil War. Yes. He hardly ever addresses it directly, and that was a coping mechanism too. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, when I introduced this conversation to him, I talked about that decade and particularly perhaps in some respects the Civil War shaping the Ireland we have today. And I I noted something, I think you wrote, uh, until the 1970s, almost all the political people who were in power were veterans of the Civil War. And I wonder the influence de Valera had himself and allowed, say, Archbishop McQuaid, who seems to me to be, you know, a thoroughly unpleasant person in in so many respects. Mm. Is it a cliche to say it shaped the politics of now, or is it actually true and 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 really quite damaging? Because the two parties, I mean, Fianna Fáil are regarded as the soldiers of destiny, mm. and Fine Gael, as uh, Leo Varadkar reminded us this week, are, are in favour of Middle, Middle Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. yeah, and the people who get up early in the morning as, yeah. as, as, as if nurses, yeah. doctors, and people yeah. would desperately have it, like, It's an interesting question. There's two ways of looking at this. There's a very memorable soundbite from Sean T. O'Kelly, who was one of the leading lights of Fianna Fáil in the early days. And when Fianna Fáil win the first general election in 1932, and it's less than 10 years after the end of the Civil War, so it, like, it's quite a, a political earthquake. And he made this comment that the uh, pony and trap class had been replaced by the donkey and cart class. Right. And he was making the argument that there is a class dimension to this, that we are going after a particular welfare constituency and the people who don't have a stake in the country as opposed to Cumberland Gael, what became Fine Gael, uh, who are there for the established and, and, and vested interests. There was a degree of truth in that. Um, civil war politics, I suppose, meant that we didn't develop a very strong Labour Party uh, in this country because Fianna Fáil would have maintained, and Lamas used to love tormenting the Labour Party, that there was no need for them because Fianna Fáil was the real Labour yes. Party. And it is true, I think, that there, there were quite a substantial number of Fianna Fáil members who in the absence of a civil war, may well have been natural members of the Labour Party, but they did drift towards Fianna Fáil. But then Fianna Fáil, the longer they're in power, and Fianna Gael, they come to converge on consensus on certain key issues, even when they're fighting elections against each other. You know, Ireland's role during the Second World War, yes. Ireland's entry into Europe, uh, the embrace of, of, of foreign trade and, and free markets and so on over, over the course of the decades. And of course, it was often commented that even though they were commanding over 80% of the vote between them, uh, right up 
to the 1980s, that there was very little that divided them ideologically, and you could trace that back to uh, the Civil War. I remember, you remember Mary Holland, the late journalist Mary Holland? Of course I do, She wrote an article in 2002, and she said she'd come to the conclusion, though, even though she had decried Civil War politics and the dearth of ideology for so long, she came to see it as a good thing. And the reason she said that was because, as she put it, the fact that the political debate was rooted in whose grandfather shot whose grandfather meant we avoided the extremes of our supposedly more sophisticated neighbours. And what she was referring to was Thatcher's Britain. Yes. And that sense of a hostility to partnership uh, when it came to, to governance and, 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 and social well-being. And she was making the point that there was a dullness, perhaps, and a stagnation to civil war politics, but there was also a very robust commitment to the centre, to a lack of yes. extremism, to facing down extremism. And that is one of the reasons, you could argue, that Ireland's democracy endured unbroken to this day. There are, are so few countries that can make that claim. So in a way, that stagnation did serve a degree of stability. That's no comfort, perhaps, for those who were forced to emigrate. Uh, when I go through the pensions files now for the Civil War generation, you know, that sense of disappointment and, and poverty and meanness and bureaucratic coldness, you can see all of those uh, disappointments heaped upon uh, disappointments. And yet, yes. even during very difficult times for democracy in Europe in the 1930s uh, in particular, people kept going back to the polls. They kept going back and voting in elections and, and putting their faith in, in what was a democratic culture that really predated our civil war, which meant that it had deeper roots and it endured. I want to ask you, uh, Dermot, about the working classes of all descriptions, whether rural or, or urban. And I saw the play Juno and the Peacock, mm. and I was very kind of moved uh, by it. I think it is a great play. But it always left me with a feeling that the whole decade that we've just been commemorating, all of it, was a, di a difference of opinion between the middle and upper classes. And that the working class were in no way involved in that. They observed it. Now, I'm sure you know better, but can you explain that to me? Where were the working class? Where was their voice? Why has there never been an Irish Labour Party worth its salt and able to get into power except riding shotgun for mm. uh, Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil? Well, one of the remarkable results in 1922, in the June 1922 general election, was the result for the Labour Party, yeah. where they got in the region of 20% of the vote. This is a great victory for Thomas Johnson at the time. Uh, had they run more candidates, they probably would have done better. And Thomas Johnson and his colleagues, to their credit, did provide some form of parliamentary opposition in the early 1920s and during the Civil War, uh, and took the government to task in relation uh, to its uh, its disdain for accountability. And the labour movement, of course, had played a very important role, uh, really from, you know, the 1912 period onwards. Um, and you had, of course, the iconic figures like James Connolly and James Larkin. The fact that Connolly was executed in 1916, of course, did not help uh, the progress of the Labour movement. What happened, though, was that 1923 soured things to the extent that Labour got squeezed. 
because there was such a focus on the Civil War divisions, the bread and butter issues that they had campaigned on successfully in 1922 didn't have as much space uh, to breathe. Yes. And then politics uh, developed in a way, as I mentioned earlier on, that Fianna Fáil were able to steal an awful lot of their political clothes. And they did that. De Valera, for example, in 1935, in the Dáil, said that if he was asked about his social philosophy, he would reply, I stand side by side with James Connolly. Um, yes. Now, there's a spectacular uh, stealing <laughs> of the clothes. But it was also yes, a recognition uh, that w- there was often a denial of class divisions in Ireland. And I think that's an important point in response to your question. It was often maintained that, well, we don't do class in Ireland and we don't want to develop a class politics. And the church was very hostile to the idea of of class politics. You mentioned John Charles McQuaid earlier on. He was also affected by the Civil War. His half-brother, Eugene McQuaid, had been killed uh, during the Civil War. And he had a preference. Whose side for, was he on? He was on the, he, he was a medic uh, on the pro-treaty side. And, right. you know, McQuaid's political preference was was very much in, in, in that direction. So people were, were shaped by that. But in relation to the, you know, the wider dilemma for Labour, you know, they were faced with that, you know, crisis of identity and, you know, how to make inroads into that very cemented, uh, civil war politics. And even when they had breakthroughs, as they did famously with Dick Spring and, you know, later on with uh, Eamon Gilmore, they didn't have the numbers, obviously, uh, to govern on their own. Uh, and they were faced, faced with that perennial problem as to whether they should uh, compromise uh, by governing with Fine Gael in order to, to, to oust Fianna Fáil. Yeah. And it did mean, of course, that our politics didn't develop in the way that Britain's politics did, you know, where you had a very identifiable uh, Labour Party. Left and, and right. And, and yeah, left and, and, right. and uh, arguably to our detriment. I mean, Sean O'Casey, who wrote Juno and the Paycock, I saw an interview with him. He went he, he went off to England. and, and Oh, he did. His... I mean, O'Casey was brilliant in the, in the 1920s. That trilogy yes. of plays, and you mentioned Juno and the Paycock, which is a fantastic yes. play. It's actually the centenary this year uh, of, of the first of that trilogy, The Shadow of Gunman, which yes. was actually staged whilst the Civil War was still raging outside. And there was a note in the program really? in the Abbey Theatre telling mm. the audience members that if they heard shots, they were to remain in their seats because it was actually part of the play. Uh, but they were also <laughs> they were also listening to noise outside. But what was fascinating about Casey, and it addresses directly the, the point you are making, was that he was asking the question, which a lot of historians later asked, who was this revolution for? Yes. Who was it fought by and who was it fought for? And when he came to write, say, the Plough on the Stars, 1926, the census revealed that there were 800,000 people in the free state living in overcrowded conditions. And the point yes. O'Casey was making in his plays and in his private cor- correspondence was that life has not changed for the inhabitants uh, of the tenements. They are yes. still, as he put it, inanimate patsies. And O'Casey had felt a great betrayal when it came to 1916. O'Casey had been part of the Irish Citizen Army. Uh, he was very much involved in trying to build what he saw as a kind of a Gaelic equality of opportunity through the labour movement and through language and through culture. He felt that the choice made in 1916 was the wrong one. Yes. And he was, I suppose you could say, proven correct from his own uh, perspective, because what developed was not a politics uh, that would lead to equality uh, of opportunity. And it's not that all of the revolutionaries were upper class, far from it. I mean, there were people involved in the War of Independence and Civil War who were from very humble backgrounds. One of the great tragedies of 1923 is that some of those who were deliberately picked out 
for execution or for being tied around the landmine you referred to in Bally Seedy. Yes. They were picked out because of their class. They were from poor families. They weren't connected. They were young. And it was deemed that they would be better to execute because of their lack of a stake in the country. A final question, uh, Dermot, is this. When you look at what we have today, uh, many people will, will look at what we have and be happy and satisfied and content. And uh, when I look at it, I feel heartsick. The health service and the housing situations in particular, because I can see another wave of emigration mm. uh, being uh, coming as a result of this. And the appeal of O'Casey and the, the whole thing of, you know, and the Paycock, I won't go into the plot now. Yeah. What do you feel as a, uh, I mean, you're much more qualified to give an answer. You know, what are we left with? We were left with the failure to deliver a meaningful social contract. It's true to say that much was achieved, and we have to consider the success stories that arise from this period, if you want to call them that, in relation to, I mentioned the, you know, the survival of democracy, yes. which is never to be sniffed at. No, it isn't. Uh, and, you know, a premium placed eventually uh, on the importance uh, of education. Um, but when it comes to vital issues like housing, when it comes to the health service, there was always this issue about how far the state would intervene. There was always this question about, we had housing emergencies from the foundation of the state. Yes. And they were addressed, particularly in the 1930s and the 1970s, through a very aggressive uh, state intervention. But housing became privatized. It was part yes. of that wider ideological shift uh, towards neoliberalism and towards the idea um, that it wasn't really the responsibility of the governments to to regulate this area, that you had to leave it yes. uh, to the market. And I mean, there was a mantra there for far too long about non-interference with the market. And that was an international phenomenon. Oh, uh, it's a, bu a bug yeah. we caught, yeah. so we can't, we can't attribute it. It was. Uh, I mean, like, you know, when you talk about the models uh, that became the norm uh, for, for Irish economic thinking or Irish economic yes. policy, th th this was part of the problem. Uh, of, of, of losing sight of, of that essential social contract. Uh, and then it becomes an issue, as we've seen recently, even when the money is there, what you yep. don't have in place is the infrastructure to deliver on it because so yep. much was taken away. For example, you know, what's going on with local authorities in relation to housing? If you, if you look back at how actively entwined local authorities were, uh, in housing. And when you consider, I suppose, uh, th that sense of a state that is there to respond uh, to these social needs, you know, at, at, at what stage, at what stage does uh, a, an ideology shift to the extent that it's not deemed to be a societal as well as a, as a governance issue. In other yes. words, you know, when you look at some of the promises, and again, it was revolutionary rhetoric, the democratic program of 1919, they did talk about the first duties of the Republic, you know, to provide shelter, yes. uh, to provide uh, proper care of younger people and older people. I mean, we failed miserably when it came to honoring those commitments. Now, the argument was often made, of course, that the country was too poor 
to deliver in practical terms on those kind of promises. But it was also about, uh, you know, an extraordinary centralization of power that's also a product of civil war, yes. where you have this emergency and existential crisis, and there's a certain disdain inherent in that for consultation with people, for real engagement uh, with communities. And, you know, the, the legacies of that linger uh, in, in in relation to some of these vital social services and, and you know when it comes to the fundamentals of well-being for people and what we prioritize and i mean that is something that is always going to be a challenge for any newly emerging state particularly in the aftermath uh, of civil war you know most of the uh, public money that's been earmarked or could have been earmarked for improving the well-being of citizens is going on recovery from the civil war and, and compensation for the civil war. And there's a huge infrastructural challenge there. But there are numerous examples of the state mobilizing its power to improve the welfare of individuals. That's true in relation to education, for example, uh, in the 1960s. So, you know, these things obviously take time. But I think many historians and social policy experts have understandably excavated uh, those those earlier decades to show what can be done if the political commitment there, uh, is done. And we've often heard it stated now by housing ministers, both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, that there's no ideological barrier to building more houses. But it's very hard to believe that when you look at how housing crises were, um, were tackled in the earlier decades of the state. Okay, it's a pleasure always to talk to Dermot and have you on the stand. Thank you very much for that. That's Professor Dermot Ferreter. Uh, his column in the Irish Times on Friday is Must Read Stuff. And we're always uh, glad uh, to talk to him. He's Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD. Grateful to Dermot, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com